Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Sports Speak, episode 123. I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Actually, the first time in a month you've had both me and Tim on at the same time. I was busy. Tim was sick. I was sick. But now we're back and we are both here. And this is the perfect day to be back because I just have to remind everybody, go Birds. The Eagles have defeated the Giants again for the third time this season. They are moving on to the NFC Championship. We will break down the whole divisional postseason round, and we will also talk some NASCAR with the clash a week and a half away, the Daytona 500 field getting finalized. Travis Pastrana, does he deserve this opportunity with 23-11 racing? Me and Tim see this argument very differently, so we will get to that later in the show. But of course, we know where we have to start. Now, it's just hilarious that we ended up getting a playoff game between the Giants and the Eagles when Tim and I had some harsh debates about these teams as far back as July. It all started with our episode that we did in Yonkers, New York, where we were ranking the teams in the NFC East. We both agreed that the Cowboys were number one. I said the Eagles were definitely number two. But Tim said that he was had a tie in his mind between the Eagles and the Giants. Now, I will give Tim all the credit in the world. The Giants played much better this season than I and most people thought they would. Brian Dable had an incredible year as a head coach, should win coach of the year, and is going to be there for a very long time. Daniel Jones had his best season, and Saquon Barkley stayed healthy. But the Philadelphia Eagles are one of the best teams in the NFL. I knew they were going to be good from the beginning of the season, and they proved it yet again in that game. And I know some people might say, Eddie, calm down, they beat the sixth seed. Well, guess what? I know if the roles were reversed, Tim would have come on here and would have been bashing Jalen Hurts because he wouldn't have won a playoff game at this point in his first two years and bashing Nick Sirianni. So I will go the other way. The Philadelphia Eagles played a tremendous game. The Giants looked terrible. I think this also exposed just how bad the Minnesota Vikings are. I said this last episode. The Vikings were so bad against the NFC East. They would have been 0-5 against the division this year if it wasn't for the game winner from Greg Joseph. The Philadelphia Eagles, who Tim said earlier in the year, did not have nearly the same defense as the New York Giants. They suffocated Daniel Jones, specifically Hassan Reddick, who whether they lined him up at the edge to get around Evan Neal or up the middle to break through the pressure was back there every time Daniel Jones dropped back. And of course, the Philadelphia offense, Jalen Hurts looked just fine throwing the ball around. Boston Scott, money Boston, scored another touchdown against the Giants and the Birds. They're playing great. Fly Eagles fly back to the NFC championship. And as tough as I've been in the past, on Howie Roseman because of the way he drafts his teams. You cannot argue he is a bad GM because the Eagles now, with almost a completely different roster than five years ago, new coach, new quarterback, new offensive weapons, nine of the 11 defensive starters are different. They're back in a position to contend for a Super Bowl. And the person who constructed that was Howie Roseman. So as hard as I've been in Roseman in the past, he knows how to construct a team. Not the best drafter, but when it comes to free agency and trades, he is the best of the best. And now the Philadelphia Eagles, a win away. They'll be facing San Francisco. But in the end, no matter what happens in that game, I'm happy because my point has been proven. The Eagles are better than the Giants. The Cowboys are gone too. And in a year where the NFC East had its best season collectively as a division since the 2001 realignment, the Eagles made it the furthest out of all of them. So I'm happy where they are, hoping for more, but I'm satisfied right now. And checkmate. The Eagles have beaten the Giants. So, Tim, I will let you as the Giants fan uh, have the floor now. 
Well, first off, I'll say this. If the Giants had beaten the Eagles, I don't think I would ever say Jalen Hurts was terrible in the playoffs. I think it would have been chalked up to health in what my topic of conversation would have been because of the fact of the matter is, let's be honest, you know, Jalen Hurts did not play his best football after coming back from injury. Of course, granted, it was a one-game span, and you just kind of worry about his health moving forward. Now, I just have a follow-up question. Has your feeling on Jalen Hurts changed as the season has gone on? Because before the year, you were questioning whether he was even the answer as the Eagles quarterback. So did his first 15 games before the injury kind of change the way you view him? I, I would say the definitely changed how I view him a little bit. But at the same time, does it still raise the question of if he had A.J. Brown? I'm not saying A.J. Brown's a pure difference maker, but he's a big assistance. You know, had he not had A.J. Brown, do you see the offense still moving the football like it has this season? Because the only reason why I say this, and this is where you give Howie Roseman a lot of credit, okay? This team has created such a triple threat where you have to almost double A.J. Brown at all times. Miles Sanders can break a run at any time. And of course, with Jalen Hurts' legs, it makes it very hard to cover that Eagles offense. And I, again, I, I feel like this for Jalen Hurts. He's gotten a lot better in terms of getting completion percentage. And this year, of course, not purely mobile. But I think the big thing, Eddie, if I'm being truthfully honest with you, and I, I think this is what we talked about as well at the start of the season a lot, the if, for the, the if factor for the Philadelphia Eagles this season is healthiness. The offensive line, for the most part, was healthy all year long. The defensive line was healthy all year long. And I, I view it like this because, again, the Eagles have a lot of superstars. You make some really, really good trades. C.J. Gardner-Johnson, for example, which is an absolute steal from New Orleans. And then, on, of course, you know the A.J. Brown trade ends up being a massive steal because of the fact that it helps the offense for practically nothing. And then you get James Bradbury out of free agency to help bolster that secondary. The team has a lot of talent. But at the end of the day, it is for Philadelphia. My only concern going to the season was that they would have had a much harder schedule on paper than the Giants. And they ended up obviously proving me wrong to not just win the division, but ultimately put on what's been a dominant season. But this game coming up for them, in my opinion, is going to be difficult. I'm not saying they're going to lose by any means, but... You go from playing, I don't want to say mediocre defenses, because they have played some good defenses all season long. Of course, you played Dallas twice, which, let's be honest, even though they didn't play well yesterday, the fact of the matter is that it's still a relatively strong and respective defense. This San Francisco team is scary in many ways. Just like how the Eagles' offense is, listen, you the, the 49ers trading for Christian McCaffrey, you could say, oh, the, you know, the, the, the 49ers got fleece trading for an injury-prone player. Well, listen, with Brock Purdy, they've still yet, still yet to fail. Debo Samuel is a versatile threat. You have Christian McCaffrey as a threat. And that defensive pass rush is incredible. Now, statistically, of course, this season, the Eagles have been a better sack-producing team than, this, than the 49ers. But the 49ers have been so good at producing turnovers, so good at minimizing points, that for what has been explosive offensive play for these two teams, I truly do believe is going to become a defensive showdown next Sunday. Because I, I just think this, when you talk about a game that really is Super Bowl-worthy potential, 
this is probably the game I'd circle and say, hey, this is the closest to a Super Bowl matchup you could probably get to this season. Because on paper, yes, do they have the upper hand in quarterback, does the Philadelphia Eagles. But we've been saying, and Eddie, let's be honest, for every week, man, Brock Purdy's going to falter at some point. He's just going to fail. And we've been waiting now 12, 13 weeks, it feels like, for Brock Purdy to fall apart. And he just hasn't done it yet. And again, I know streaks don't last forever, but the fact of the matter is, is at some point, we just have to give Brock Purdy and this 49ers team credit. They're just that dang good to go out there and play good football and really be the Super Bowl threats that people have been talking about all season. And for the record, it's the last point I'll make regarding the 49ers is that, listen, I never understood the hype coming into the season why every year some you know teams would call the 49ers this massive threat to win the Super Bowl and say how they're the best built team in the NFL to win a Super Bowl. But as the year had went on, Trey Lance looked horrible, let's be honest, injury unfortunate. Jimmy Garoppolo put them in a spot to win, gets hurt. But the fact that you bring in Mr. Irrelevant Brock Purdy, he is balling out, playing good football, and putting the 49ers in an opportunity an opportune position and giving them an opportunity to win a Super Bowl proves the point further that this team is built to win a Super Bowl. And now I understand why. And listen, give Shanahan all the credit in the world. This offense has played lights out and he has a complimentary, or I should say more than complimentary of a defense to help. But I, again, I don't know what's going to happen on the AFC side. Whoever comes out on that uh, uh, in that game, rather if it's Cincinnati or Kansas City, but I'd be worried if, let's say, I'm Cincinnati and I'm going back to the Super Bowl because the fact of the matter is, I wouldn't want to play any of the defenses that come out of the NFC side. And originally speaking, our last episode going into the playoffs, when we briefly talked about it, I said, hey, the AFC side, you know, when you look in terms of offensive production, would probably be the side you'd be most worried about. But as the playoffs has gone on, the end of the regular season has gone on, I'd say it's fairly changed. It's the NFC side I'd want to worry about the most in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I agree with that. I will say at least for the Eagles, their AFC games this year, they did not play great. They played good against the Steelers and the Titans and the Jags in the second half, but the Colts and the Texans somehow tripped them up. So I will still say, we will talk about the AFC in just a few minutes, but uh, those two teams are spectacular. But defensively, we saw the Niners shut down Dak Prescott. Now, I've never been a big guy on Dak Prescott anyway, and I was kind of disappointed by his performance yesterday. And again, the mismanagement from the Cowboys on the final drive of that game, I know it was going to be hard because you had no timeouts, but you still had 50 seconds to work with. And every play call they did was bad. First, they had a rollout with Dak where he almost ended up with a safety. Then they let way too much time off the clock on a completion over the middle. Then they had that throw where somehow Dalton Schultz didn't step out of bounds and he got tackled. He stepped out of bounds. This is one thing I will say that I despise about the NFL. You're always taught if a player steps out of bounds in the closing minutes, this clock stops. He slowed down and got pushed backwards out of bounds so hence the rule is the clock continues to run that is one of the dumbest rules i've ever heard of the fact is if a player is out of bounds he's out of bounds if he got tackled inbounds the clock keeps running just because a player got pushed backwards out of bounds shouldn't change anything if he's out he's out and i, I will save that for regards to the dallas cowboys 
I'm not saying that's a game-changing situation, of course, because the fact of the matter is they had opportunities before that. But I would be pretty pissed considering the fact that, listen, made the first down, got out of bounds, but because he decided to not fully embrace contact, the clock's going to keep running. But that, that's, 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 that's not a change. But that's the thing. I mean, he didn't make a complete effort to try to get himself out of bounds. That's why I can at least understand the ruling i'm not going to say i agree with it but dalton schultz has to make a bigger effort and then there's worse plays after that because then the next play dalton schultz i mean you have to try to get both feet down this is professional football and he didn't and then i don't know what that play design was for the last play of the game obviously not getting the completion of schultz meant you were going to have to try a lateral play but why do you line up all the offensive linemen out to the right side have Zeke line up by himself, two rushers at Zeke. Prescott has no time to get the ball off and he throws it to maybe the worst option there. You had Turpin on an under route for five yards and you had Jimmy Ward and another niner read it perfectly and get right there. So it was a horrendous play design by Dallas. And I still think Mike McCarthy is potentially on the hot seat here. But before we talk about that I want to get your take on the Giants because the re- the other thing I wanted to talk about with the Giants, they did not get to 11 and six, but as I said, they did better than I thought they would. And I give them all the credit, but I read your Twitter and then I got very confused. Daniel Jones had a great year. Daniel Jones deserves a contract. He proved that he's got deserves the starting job, at least for the near future, but six years Six years is what you said. To me, six years is outrageous. And your argument to me was that the market might set it where the Giants are going to have to guarantee him extra years. I say the opposite because Russell Wilson, just like we saw in the NBA, Rudy Gobert scared a lot of teams away from making moves in the offseason because of how bad that deal was. The fact that this Russell Wilson move and subsequent signing could be one of the worst things we've ever seen in the NFL, I think it's going to scare teams. And it's not like Daniel Jones is the only productive quarterback that's going to be out there. Derek Carr, Lamar Jackson, Tom Brady, and Jimmy Garoppolo may all be available. And in my opinion, all four of them are better than Daniel Jones. Plus, you have a draft class with four quarterbacks expected to go in the top 10. So eight teams that are looking for a new quarterback are probably going to get them before they even consider Daniel Jones. So I don't think the Giants are going to be pressured into giving him six years. If you're going to give him two or three I'm fine with that, but I think that is way too much of a commitment. I agree with what you said about franchise tagging Saquon Barkley, because I think there's even more of a wild card with him because we know he gets injured every year. This was the first season he was completely healthy. Let it sit another year, give him another chance to go a full season. I agree with tagging him. I like your idea about bringing in DeAndre Hopkins, but six years for Daniel Jones to me is just insane. I mean, the the fact of the matter is, the reason why I say six years is this, is that I truly believe there are going to be teams, particularly in the NFC South, like the Carolina Panthers, that are going to want to bring in a quarterback like Daniel Jones that have that mobile ability and have that fact of the matter for the long term. And listen, I'm not saying that, you know, Daniel Jones is playing to a superstar long-term level, but realistically speaking, I mean, there's no quarterback in college right now that the Giants, let's say if Daniel Jones isn't the answer, the Giants can turn around and draft. And here's the big thing. Here's the reason why I mentioned long-term years, Eddie. You expand the years upon, and you give them a $120 million contract, suddenly that blow, if the Giants choose to cut Daniel Jones or trade Daniel Jones, diminishes drastically rather than giving him 
$30 million a year for a three-year contract or a four-year contract if he turns out to be horrible after this season. So if you think about it, I mean, on paper, he would be less of an impact and less of an issue than Kenny Galladay would be for the New York Giants. And that's at a primary quarterback position. I think the fact of the matter is this, Daniel Jones proved that he needs to be a New York Giant in the future. And while I agree, yes, three, four years is more realistic, I think from a financial standpoint for the New York Giants and Joe Schoen, there's ways of getting out of issues and adjusting through them. Hence why I think more years for a certain amount of money could uh, definitely pay that factor. And the fact of the matter is this, listen, Daniel Jones needs to be paid over $100 million in the current quarterback market we have, unfortunately. Uh, I think there are teams that will pay him around the $150 million mark, uh, to be quite frank with you, um, just because of the fact that there's other quarterbacks, as you mentioned, free agency, uh, that are likely going to make a total, totally uh, a lot more money um, that may have had worse years this season than Daniel Jones. And again, I, I don't think one year makes the quarterback, but I think for Daniel Jones, the Giants are going to need to get him on a contract-friendly deal. And I think the really the true selling point, Eddie, and the, it goes back to why I think six years, 120 mil is more appropriate outside of the aspect from financial, uh, financially speaking, giving him about $20 million a year. But I think the other thing to think about. The Giants this year, until they cut Kenny Galladay, have an estimate about $60 million in cap space. You bring back Saquon Barkley, or Saquon, let's be to be honest with you, has been very open about saying that he understands his value should not be as high as what it is for a superstar running back because of his three years of injury. If the Giants turn around and bring them back both on contract-friendly terms, the Giants are going to have a lot of money to play with to go get a DeAndre Hopkins, have a lot of money to go bring in Odell Beckham Jr. And really, the big thing about the New York Giants, in my analysis at the end of the season, listen, they need to, of course, draft another wide receiver talent to really help. The old line, let's be honest, got better as the season went on. Um, and if you get those two receiver help, that's great. But what the Giants really need is a marquee linebacker to really help this defense. I don't think Jalen Smith played bad at all this season. Julian Love racked up a lot of tackles, but is he really a game-changing safety? I, I think he can bring it back. But the Giants need secondary help outside of Adoree Jackson, who, give him credit, played his tail off this postseason after coming back from injury. And Fabian Moreau, I'd love to bring him back as well. But Darnay Holmes is not the answer, uh, as well as Robinson and everyone else in that secondary. Cordell Flott, another name to think about as well. The Giants need someone that can really cover the slot well, and they need internal help. And of course, we know they lost that after losing Blake Martinez, but that was a financial decision when it came down for Joe Schoen. And again, like, let's say Jalen Smith played great, but the Giants don't need help down low. They have a solid pass rush, but the big thing that, you know, you know, it's funny that the big thing that killed the Giants, we talked about this year about how they have such good run stoppers, Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, of course, Kayvon Thibodeau and everyone on the edge, but yet the Giants were one of the worst teams defensively stopping the run this year. So we have such good run stoppers in that front, you know, in the front line, but yet we couldn't stop the run. And that goes to my point of, again, well, if it's not 
your downwards lineman, it has to be in the linebacker position. So I'm hoping the Giants can turn around and get someone that can play that linebacker position effectively. Um, and there, there is a little bit of a market for it. Who's it going to be? I don't know. Maybe the Giants draft someone. But the point is, is that they need depth. That's what this offseason is about. Now that you have the finances, you need depth, and that's how you're going to build a team around Daniel Jones, and especially on the defense defensive end maybe get a little bit of help uh, for a team that let's be honest of course didn't have anything for Philadelphia but overall you know statistically looked appealing in a regular season but had a lot of trouble on third downs this season well and I agree with all of that and I agree with your direction with what they need because it's pretty obvious they need depth especially in the defense because the team fell apart middle of the season when everybody got hurt because they had nobody there that they could pl- replace them when they went from six and one to seven and six and one and they went one five and one in the seven game stretch my question for you though is it worth it to sign Daniel Jones for six years, though, because you you were the same person who last month when the Yankees signed Carlos Rodon, you didn't like them signing him based on two good years. Daniel Jones has gotten better over the four years, but he still has a lot of flaws. And again, I worry that the Giants become, you know, too short-sighted by just what he did in the 2022 season and then lock him up and then you're stuck with him. And I know you say if he's making less money, he'll be easier to trade. But if you're stuck with five years of guaranteed contract, you know, maybe a team's not going to want to do that because then they're they're stuck with him for a long term. I think the only reason if he's playing bad, a team would trade for him is if they think they could fix him in the short term. They're not going to trade for him for a long-term deal if he's locked up for so many years. So, I, I just am curious about your logic there. Well, it's the fact of the matter that just for example, with like Kenny Galladay this season, where let's be honest, the Giants are probably going to cut him. But it's the same thing with Daniel Jones. 120 million in retrospect of a 20 million dollar per year contract. Let's say, and let's be realistic, okay? Daniel Jones, if he were to get cut by the Giants, would probably still be playing two to three seasons, unless next season he has the worst season of any quarterback that we've ever seen. So with that being said, hence if he's played three years out of the deal, year four, year five, ever the Giants can cut him if they can't get trade value out of him. Which goes back to my point of listen, six years I think establishes that there's the confidence. And this goes back to the point too. If you've noticed this whole season, rather if it's stable or shown, everything they made decisions around this year is built around confidence and dependability. And by giving Daniel Jones a contract like that proves that Daniel Durr, that, that Joe Schoen and Brian Dable truly trust that Daniel Jones is that dependable guy. So if you want to continue building positive moving forward, and again, I understand player value and so on, but if you want to continue pushing that message forward, I feel that's a way of them doing it as well. And again, it goes to the point of why I just still feel think is that, yes, I know maybe teams may not want to trade for a player that has guaranteed money, but at the end of the day, there's so much around finances that Joe Schoen's going to have to work through. And I just feel that again, from a financial standpoint for the Giants' future, not just next season, but building down the road, that's the best way of them doing it. Because, again, I feel that the Giants have a huge opportunity this offseason to build what was a winning season and continue winning in the future rather than us having to wait for draft picks. And I feel that 
this team is a step ahead than what we anticipated. And I want to point out, too, when you look at next season, um, uh, of course, schedules haven't fully come out yet. But, you know, we talked about going to this season. The NFC East had a very easy schedule. You know, of course, there's still an offseason to go. But the NFC East is going to have another relatively easy schedule next season with there being a lot of mediocre teams from this season that um, that all the teams in the NFC East went on to play. So needless to say, next season is another opportune time, in my opinion, for the NFC East to continue shining and continue being those teams that are not just showing up in the playoff picture so often, but maybe even be Super Bowl favorites. So NFC Championship, Eagles and Niners, I agree with you. It's going to be a low-scoring game. I think both defenses are going to show up. And you were saying how Brock Purdy, you know, we he keeps defying us. We keep thinking, oh, this is going to be the game he's going to slip up. It never happens. I think we're actually going to see it on Sunday because he's never played a road playoff game before. And Philly is a raucous environment to go into. It's going to be a close game. Eagles aren't going to be dominant like they were in the NFC Championship five years ago against Case Keenum. But I got to ride with the birds again. I'm going to go with the Eagles to win this one by seven. I think they're going to take care of it over San Francisco. It's going to be close, going to be low scoring. McCaffrey's going to score. I think Miles Sanders is going to have a big game for the Eagles, but I'm going to go with Philly by seven. Who's your pick for the NFC champion? By the way, uh, I went four and oh in the divisional round. So Tim, you've got to, you know, I got to go completely over three the rest of the way, or else you're not even getting a share of the Pickham championship. I got very lucky in the divisional round. Yeah, well, I went one and three this week. But listen, you know, stuff happens. But I'll put it like this. I think that, you know, Philadelphia, again, very competitive team. But, man, I, I just – I'm still so bought into now as the season's going on that San Francisco really is a Super Bowl threat. And I think that defense is superior. I'm not saying that, again, they're going to really fully shut down Jalen Hurts and make him look bad. But he's still, again, and I know he played great against the Giants, but I just still worry about the health. And especially, I mean, think about it. These first, uh, the, the first two games uh, of, of, actually, I'm sorry, two of the three, for uh, two of the first three games in this divisional round, you, you saw injury scares. Of course, we know Patrick Mahomes, is he healthy? Uh, it looks like a high ankle sprain, which you have to worry about. You saw Josh Allen, I mean, get his bell rocked. Daniel Jones looked like even he almost got hurt on Saturday. And my point is this, is that I'm not saying Jalen Hurts is going to get hurt, but in a lot of these more physical games in the playoffs, you just worry, you know, what that injury history and what toll it could play if it becomes a factor as the games go on against good defense, we shall see. But I truly think that it's going to come down to three points. Um, and I honestly think, yes, does Brock Purdy falter a little bit? Absolutely. But I think Christian McCaffrey is going to be the difference as a playmaker for the 49ers um, on Sunday. So I think that to be, to give you an exact score, I think it's going to be a 24, 21 game uh, in which the 49ers kick a game winning field goal in the closing seconds. All right. Then I'll go 23, 16 Eagles. Now let's shift to the AFC championship chiefs. Get the win over Jacksonville. I thought it was going to be close. It was part of that because of Patrick Mahomes' injury. But somehow, basically on one leg, Patrick Mahomes was still able to put, you know, lead the Chiefs to an AFC championship. And can we? I know people get mad about how some of these TV analysts get a little over the top about obsessing over Patrick Mahomes. There's that one clip of him throwing a ball literally into the dirt, and Chris Collinsworth saying that's an amazing play by Patrick Mahomes. But 
He's now five for five in making it to conference championship games. We thought this year he was going to falter because Tyreek Hill was no longer there. He no longer had his number one receiver. He had a young backfield with a lot of questions. His receiving core, very questionable. Guys who couldn't stick with other teams. Valdez Scantling from Green Bay, Juju from Pittsburgh. And defensively, there were questions about the Chiefs. And the AFC West was supposedly going to be stacked. There were going to be all these elite quarterbacks in the AFC. Yet the Chiefs, again, are going to be hosting a conference championship game at Arrowhead Stadium. On the other side, the Bengals. I said it. That was going to be the one upset. Buffalo, very vulnerable, and despite having the momentum on their side, the storyline with Hamlin on their side, the weather on their side, and the home field on their side, the Bills got crushed by the Bengals. Not having Von Miller, I said it, and it was true, not having Von Miller was a bigger loss for Buffalo than the Bengals missing pieces on their offensive line. Because remember, Bengals' offensive line was terrible last year and they still made it to the Super Bowl. Joe Burrow is an elite performer when it matters most more so than Josh Allen. Allen is in a unique athletic specimen and such a great quarterback. But when push comes to shove in big situations, it's Joe Burrow who seems to come through. And so far in his early stage of his career, Burrow has proven this. Jamar Chase had a big game. And despite the Bengals' woes with their own line and their secondary, they played a phenomenal game. Now, looking at the AFC Championship, Bengals are 3-0 against Patrick Mahomes. Burrow v. Mahomes. Mahomes has never beaten Cincinnati. He's going to be motivated, but this injury is going to be such a question with the Chiefs. And I have to say at this point, you know the Bengals are going to target him. He's never beaten Cincinnati before. I think this is going to be the game of the postseason. Bengals are going to win it. It's going to be high scoring. It's going to be back and forth. Cincinnati, 34-28. They take down the Chiefs and go back to the Super Bowl. What's your pick? Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you. I think Cincinnati wins this. And listen, at the end of the day, when you look at it uh, for Kansas City, I just, you know, listen, I understand Patrick Mahomes has never beaten the Bengals, and, or in terms of Joe Burrow at least. But the fact of the matter is that – that injury is just going to be, I feel, way too much and holds him back. I mean, think about the Super Bowl. Granted, it wasn't an injury for Patrick, but look at no O-line, no help. That team fell apart. Now, of course, the O-line's a lot better, but I just don't see how a quarterback with a leg injury that has been very prioritized about his throwing ability in his lower half and his mobile ability to make plays matter is going to be able to do that um, in a game like this. And listen, the one thing that impressed me about the Bengals against the Bills more than anything else is that they continued to play aggressive passing through the snow. They didn't slow down the offense. And honestly, I think Tony Romo really hit it on the nose in terms of Joe Burrow style. And to be honest with you, Joe Burrow's really putting up a, a Peyton Manning-esque type offense where he just breaks it down, gets to reads, and it becomes very hard to cover. And it proves how smart of a quarterback he is and how much he studied this game. And I think people, you know, again, I know Joe Burrow, when you talk about NFL quarterbacks, you know, not a lot of people throw him in the top five and say he's up there at the elite, elite level. But Joe Burrow is an elite quarterback. And we're getting to an era in the NFL where the term elite quarterback can only bring you so far because now there feels like there's so many quarterbacks we can put under the elite scale in some way or some form. But you've got to give Joe Burrow some credit. I mean, my man is just balling out, playing good football, playing good offense. And let's not forget this. Earlier in the season, 
a lot of us thought the Cincinnati Bengals were falling apart. Three weeks in the season, this team was suffering. We're like, man, they're not going to come back to the Super Bowl. They're even lucky if they win AFC North. But luckily, a couple of Lamar Jackson injuries and everything changing it up ends up putting them in a position to win AFC North, find some momentum, play some good football, and realistically putting them in a good chance to go to the Super Bowl for back-to-back seasons. I think for Joe Burrow, He's going to play good offensively, and this team is simply ice cold. And to be honest with you, compared to last season's team, you know, very little changed in terms of what was on that roster. But And I always talk about how complacency doesn't bring you many places uh, in, in the world of sports. But this team has found ways to adapt despite not – like they made additions but not making many major, major additions to help Joe Burrow, uh, Burrow out offensively. But Joe Burrow doesn't need no help beating Kansas City Chiefs. That offense can need to shine. If you're Steve Spagnuolo on the Kansas City side, you're going to need to find a way to bring the pressure as much as you can because – Joe Burrow has found ways this season to be a dual threat, running the football, you know, in the red zone, or finding ways to use Joe Mixon in the back uh, passing game as well as P. Ryan. And Jamar Chase is Jamar Chase. I mean, he he is proving to be not the maybe maybe not the best receiver in the league because you have guys like Justin Jefferson, Devontae Adams, they're always good, but one of the best playmakers in the league. And this Cincinnati Bengals team is certainly a fun team to watch. And I think whoever they face in the NFC side in the Super Bowl is going to be a challenge, but they deserve to be back there again. Yeah, 100%. Let's finish with some NASCAR. Five minutes left in the show. So the field is getting set for the Daytona 500. I'm very excited because there's already 41 entries. I have a feeling we're going to see one or two more, maybe Team Esamins, maybe Money Team. But already the five cars are all financially supported. And in my opinion, five of them are capable drivers. Tim will say four of them are. But in the very end, we're going to get interesting duels, which I think NASCAR needs because we haven't gotten that in many years. Now, the one questionable car, obviously you've got Austin Hill, Chandler Smith coming up from the lower series, definitely deserving of the opportunity. Zane Smith won the truck race at Daytona last year. Jimmy Johnson is back. He deserves it. Seven-time champ, now teamed up with Todd Gordon. But Travis Pastrana racing a third car for 23-11 racing. Personally, I am a huge fan of this. A huge surprise. People thought it was going to be Carl Edwards in the video. I'm sorry, NASCAR fans, Carl Edwards is not coming back. But Travis Pastrana, he's raced before, didn't have the most success in the past, but... If Kimi Raikkonen's going to get a chance to run a cup car at Watkins Glen, why not give Travis Pastrana a chance at Daytona? And Kimi Raikkonen was guaranteed into that field at Watkins Glen. There were no DNQs in that race. Pastrana could very easily DNQ if he doesn't belong. And, you know, with Pastrana, I think this is a huge idea because you now have his cult following that's going to come over and watch the race, bring new eyeballs to the 500. And there are a lot of people that cheer on Pastrana outside of NASCAR that like his rally cross. He broke Evil Knievel's motorcycle jump records. He has a major track record in the motorsports world. And for NASCAR to get someone who's not from a NASCAR background that wants to run your biggest race, I think that's cool. And if you're a NASCAR fan who's one of those proud people who say that NASCAR is the top motorsport, if Travis Pastrana fails, that only makes your drivers look better. And it shows how difficult the Daytona 500 really is. So I really don't see how there's any sort of drawback to this. And I think Pastrana getting a chance is huge. And it's going to bring a lot of eyeballs to the 500 of people who wouldn't typically watch the Great American Race. 
See, that's where I disagree because I don't think it's going to bring as many eyeballs as what you think. Travis Pastrana is a washed individual in regards to the sport of racing. Congratulations. He's done a lot, and I'm not taking away his X Games glory, but I'd like to remind you the fact that the only reason why he's won so many X Games gold medals is because of the fact that professional athletes in the sport of supercross or motocross simply couldn't compete in the X Games because they're actively participating in their own sport. Congratulations. He's a professional stuntman and the most he's done over the last three years is turn around and do America's Got Talent because that's all he's been capable of doing because at the end of the day while he started his own rally cross board, won his own championship and does something that races five to nine races a year which to quote unquote determine a true champion really makes a difference he hasn't done anything for the sport of NASCAR in 2013 he came in the Xfinity series he failed miserably for a funded team Team that won three out of five championships in a five-year span, and he was the embarrassment, the biggest one of them all, crashed the car 13, 14 times in a season, and that excludes practices, and had so many DNFs that out of after one year, he was out of full-time riding. 2012, had a chance, okay, everyone bought in then, of course, you know, to come in the car, get his opportunities, broke his leg in the X Games, which was unfortunate, and by the way, I was a big Travis Pastrana fan then, but the fact of the matter is, disappeared from the sport after failure and then turns around and magically has a cup series opportunity despite looking nowhere near good and were making the field in his part-time opportunities in the lowest series at the time NASCAR had to offer. Had he come to the Cup Series with an underfunded team, maybe I would have respected it. Maybe the fact of the matter is, though, 23XI is a team that has funding and is one of the top six if not top five teams currently there to offer a nascar and the way it sounded from 23xi the whole oh well we just needed a car anyways i guess to you know really prepare for kurt that's great they weren't out there seeking for travis pastrana and i'll say it like this to end it off i think it's an absolute joke that pastrana utilized the american dream as his reason why sponsors should back him for the daytona 500 you mentioned kimmy reichenden that's all great and grand kimmy had barely any nascar experience other than one xfinity series one-off Travis had a full-blown, full-time experience. And by the way, you mentioned in the sport of Supercross or Rallycross. Guess what? There's a guy that also participated in NASCAR and worked his tail off to try to get to the top level, and his name was Ricky Carmichael. So at the end of the day, Travis Pastrana, bye-bye. Hope you fail in NASCAR because I'll say it like this. Un- deserving to be in the cup series level and by the way there is a sixth entry who i also feel very undeserving but at least has worked his tail off the xfinity series level uh his name in a 15 car will end up being riley herbst well yeah i agree with you on that i think pastrana i think it's cool and hey somebody views the nascar as the american dream i'm all for it but we'll finish with that we'll have more to talk about we're gonna have eric o'connor on at some point very soon uh to preview nascar talk some supercross but that'll wrap up this episode follow us on twitter at sportspeak live until next time go birds i'm eddie kalegi and more signing off of sports speak we hope you have a great rest of your week